Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey. Hey. Um, did you see that someone died at, at Rikers Island? I did. Which is something that I've been hearing a lot about from... People in the public health community, it is a serious source of concern for outbreaks. What do we know besides that there was a death in Rikers about what's happening in jails across the country? Well, I mean, I think it's just a bad situation already, even mm -hmm. if not a lot of people have died yet. You have governments telling you, you know... New York State is saying, we're going to fine you $1,000 if you're hanging out in a group of people. They're urging us not to get on the subway, to, to, the, saying that we must stay far apart from other people. And then at the same time, the criminal justice system operated by the government is ordering people to go into these confined spaces with lots of other people and saying they cannot leave. It's nonsensical. Well... In an, in an outbreak like this. Obviously, there are other variables, but you can't plead innocence as saying like, oh, we didn't know that we were condemning them to sickness. Right. Because they clearly know that. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that any crowded space where people can't isolate is a problem, a jail seems like the worst possible place. Yeah. I've written a little bit about infectious diseases in prisons in the past and the rates of almost everything are just higher among inmates. But I don't think there's been, you, there are isolated outbreaks of terrible diseases in certain prisons and the overall numbers are worse than the general population of m most everything, term, mm -hmm. infectious disease wise. But I don't think we've seen a situation like this where you're, you're poised to see every single jail get overwhelmed by one certain disease. Mm -hmm. This is a real test of the values we place on human life. You, you, you know that you're condemning a lot of people to extreme sickness and death if you maintain the situation as it is. So there are people thinking about this, so we should talk to Connor about what is being done to try to deal with this problem. Connor has covered the criminal justice system for a long time. Let's ask So Connor Friedersdorf Connor. is a staff writer here at The Atlantic and he's been covering how the coronavirus is affecting policies around in jails and prisons around the country. Hello. Hey, Catherine. Hey. Hey, Connor. Hey, Jim. How are you? Oh man, I'm a lot better now that I'm talking to you. Jim's a big uh, fan of yours, Connor. Well, I'm I'm a big fan too, so that's good. It'd be awkward if one of us was a huge enemy of the other one. No, 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 no. Connor, I always enjoy your Instagrams at night, walking around, taking walks. Document the nightscape. <laughs> Wait, you... The nightscape. These are, these are, what are your Instagrams? Catherine just joined Instagram again. It's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> she, like, doesn't even know a lot of the memes. Um, <laughs> what are you doing? What is, what is so great about it, your Instagram? Oh, I don't know if it's, it's so great, but I just, <laughs> um, I just wander around late at night and uh, listen to podcasts and take pictures of, of things in the night. So, wow, and, not uh, creepy at all. Just <laughs> walking around silently at night taking pictures. 
Yes. Like I once walked all of Sunset Boulevard, which is, <laughs> took like six or seven hours. And uh, I would sometimes take an Uber to downtown, say, for drinks with friends or to Hollywood to go to a comedy show. And then I would attempt to walk home listening <laughs> to, uh, like my backup of podcasts. So it would be like a three or four hour walk. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, that's a very like in the long middle walk. of the night. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow. I can't wait to check out your Instagram and try to (laughs) figure out what's going on in your head. Um, Anyway, Connor, why don't you tell us uh, just what you've been covering since the coronavirus hit? One of the things I thought immediately was, wow, any emergency has huge civil liberties implications. And while I've been basically fully on board with all of the shelter-in-place orders and the shutdown of a lot of businesses, uh, I I was immediately concerned about what was going to happen to people in jail, to people who've been arrested for different crimes. Uh, I saw that California was pretty radically altering its criminal procedures, and some of the things made total sense to me. For example, they delayed all jury trials because how do you convene a jury right now when you're asking everyone to be socially distant? In the same emergency order, they said that you don't have to arraign someone in 48 hours now. You can take a whole week to arraign them. And you know, arraignment is the stage of the process where people who can't afford an attorney get one. And so you could have someone who is arrested on, say, suspicion of drunk driving, and they would now have to sit in jail for seven days, potentially, before they even talk to an attorney. And the more that I started to think about this, the more I thought, wow, I bet jails are a really terrible environment for coronavirus, for not getting the coronavirus, just because Mm -hmm. how do you socially distance when you're around all these people? So I just kind of started digging in and seeing different criminal justice reform advocates expressing this same fear on Twitter people are concerned about this everywhere. And in fact, there are these efforts to thin out jail populations and to figure out who really needs to be here uh, and and who doesn't need to be here. Sounds like something we should have figured out a while ago. Well, it really is one of these instances where the coronavirus is exposing things that maybe should have happened before. Um, But one of the first things that jumped out at me as someone who has followed criminal justice reform efforts on the policy side, mostly for years. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who have been incarcerated, talked to a lot of public defenders, talked to a lot of prosecutors. And something I never knew until this pandemic is that prisoners are often not given soap. Um, It varies among facilities. So one of the first articles I wrote was just we need to be giving prisoners soap, not only because the CDC is recommending hand washing as one of the main guards against catching coronavirus, although that is a big reason right now, but even after this pandemic is over, these jails, as I found, are places where infectious diseases just spread uh, rampantly, all infectious diseases. And I mean, the fact that you have to write an article, like bold idea, we should give prisoners soap, is really sad to me. Absolutely. My overwhelming impression during this pandemic is that uh, lots of prisoners are in dire straits, partly because of things that are particular to the way the coronavirus spreads and a prison system that just isn't equipped to keep people far enough apart, but also due to things like soap that always should have been there. And this pandemic just happens to be exposing 
uh, an awful shortcoming of our system. And right. as someone who has just written a, a book about hygiene and the history of the soap industry, uh, it's super easy to make and it's very, very cheap. This is not like providing people with a luxury. Right. Not only affordable, but one would think cheaper once you factor in, you know, we're paying for the medical bills of prisoners who get sick. And so it's it's another confounding example of kind of penny wise, pound foolish on our institutions. And <laughs> Welcome to public health. Now. Yeah, I mean, that's what it always is, right? If we factored in the exorbitant cost of our $3 trillion healthcare system, on any of these interventions would make total sense, but we just don't. <sighs> and from what I've been hearing, this is also distinguishable from other infectious diseases that spread in prisons in the sense that the seriousness of the cases, the people that are having to get hospitalized, uh, prison hospitals mostly aren't going to be able to handle that. I'm hearing that a lot of facilities are going to have to send their sickest patients to community hospitals. And it's an instance where not only the prisoners who we ought to be concerned about for their own sake would be affected, but also the people in this community would be affected as well. And it's been one of the strongest arguments for letting people who can be let out out uh, before a pandemic spreads. What do we know about, are we getting information from jails and prisons across the country about, you know, how many confirmed cases? Like, can people get tested inside? What do we know about what's already happening? I've seen news reports about one or two prisoners testing positive in a given facility uh, and, and more often about guards testing positive in a given facility um, so clearly there's some testing going on of, of inmates in some places and, you know, in places where there are very limited tests, it's usually the case that people who are locked away for having committed crimes are at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to just, if there's any discretion, they're going to be the last to be taken care of. Right. Mm -hmm. So you... Let me listen in to one of your reporting phone calls recently. Why don't you tell Jim who we talked to? We talked to this woman named Maya Ragsdale. She's a former public defender. Uh, she's an attorney in Miami now, and she's working with a couple of nonprofit organizations there, the Dream Defenders and FemPower. And they have this thing called the Community Bail Fund, where they go into jails and try to post bail for indigent people who committed pretty minor offenses and yet are sitting in jail for week after week because they can't come up with the $50 or $100 or $500 to get out while they're awaiting trial. So that's what she was doing. She was going into the jail system. She was talking to uh, prisoners and she was coordinating this process. So, so I listened into this call with Maya and I think we should play a little bit of it. I mean, one of the things that she talked about was just what she's seeing in jails right now, just what, what she's seeing from going inside and what it's like inside. So why don't we play a bit of that, and then we can come back and talk about sort of the larger context afterwards. Um, so my name is Maya Ragsdale. I am an attorney in Miami. I have been working with community groups all over Miami um, who are doing criminal justice-related issues, specifically around pretrial detention and money bail. Just for people who have no familiarity with, you know, the jail system or what the inside of a prison might be like, can you just describe it 
Sure. Um, you know, in Miami, we have three different jails um, and they are all different on the inside. So the jail that is considered to be just absolutely deplorable conditions inside is called pretrial detention center. And it's a very old jail. You walk in, everything feels sticky. It's loud. It is just honestly disgusting. And I used to hate to go in there when I was a public defender. Um, and that jail, you know, there's cells that are just kind of jam-packed with people. Um, the jail that, um, you know, I've been talking to the most people out of more recently is called Metro West Detention Center. And I would say it's kind of like on the opposite end of the spectrum of pretrial detention center in the sense that um, instead of having these like very small cells that are full of, you know, maybe like eight to 10 people, these are slightly bigger kind of dorm style cells. People are sleeping 60 people to a cell, two feet away from each other, uh, you know, no access to really basic hygiene products. I have a bottle of hand sanitizer sitting in front of me. Somebody in prison or in jail doesn't have access to something like that. I mean, this seems like a like a perfect environment for coronavirus to thrive. Exactly. And I think on top of just the close proximity, people share everything in jail. So you have, you know, five, six phones that are being used by 50 to 70 people. You have one water cooler, one tiny water cooler where, um, you know, you have to press a button to get water out of it. And people put their little water bottles right up to the spigot where their mouths have touched you know, everything inside of jail is shared. So, right. you know, these are, this is just like you said, it's the, it's the perfect conditions. And what kind of cleaning products are, do, do people have access to? People have access to what people who are inside call state soap. Um, the way it's been described to me is little kind of bars, very, very small bars of soap that have seashells on them um, that kind of resemble what you might see at a hotel. Mm -hmm. um, they are not antibacterial. Um, they are people generally don't even feel like that they even clean when they just use it for their bodies. And so people who have a little bit of money to put into commissary try to buy soap that's antibacterial. What's their level of information about the coronavirus and the public health recommendations for what to do about it? Are they pretty well informed inside the jail or are they kind of in the dark? So this is a really wild thing that, that happened um, last week. So we bonded somebody out. And when the person came out, we always make sure that we pick people up and give them rides. Um, and so, you know, our volunteers showed up with gloves and masks. And the person who got bonded out was so surprised because he was like, you know, like he had been locked up for a few months and he was just like, why are you wearing, like, what is this? Why are you showing up with gloves and masks? And they told him about the coronavirus and he had never even heard of it before. He had never heard of it before. Um, and so I think that that's like, you know, there's people who are in that situation where they've literally never even heard about this outbreak before. And then I think that there, it also, there's also people, for example, a lot of people who I've spoken to in Metro West um, the only information that they're getting on the coronavirus is from the news. There was actually somebody who told me that when he talked about, he had heard about social distancing from the news. And when he told a guard about how he didn't feel like he could do that inside, the guard told him social distancing doesn't apply to people who are in jail. So um, I think that the lack of information and the kind of messaging that people are getting from guards is just terrifying for people because they're hearing what they should be able to do but in terms of like what they're actually able to do and, and what, what they're being told that Corrections is doing to protect them, it, those things just don't match up. 
And can you relate? What kinds of things have prisoners been telling you to make you understand that they're scared? I mean, people literally just say they're terrified. You know, people just straight up tell me, I am scared. I'm terrified. I think that if this enters my cell, I'm going to die. When you go to visit, are they asking you, do you have a temperature? Or is there any attempt to screen people who are coming in? So the first time that I went, there was no screening at all. The second time that I went in, um, there were, they did take temperatures. I felt, I honestly felt very nervous um, going to the jail just, and, and I still, now I'm definitely self-quarantining for the next 14 days. When's the last time you went? I went on Wednesday. Mm. I think it was Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> I have no <laughs> sense of time either. Um, well, I, I've heard a little bit about some places are recognizing this problem and releasing people in anticipation of this being a huge problem. Is that not happening where you are? So there have been a, there have been quite a few people who have been released. Um, there is a pretty active campaign with an organization that I'm working. For, I'm a Justice Catalyst fellow with this organization. It's called Dream Defenders. And um, we put out a set of demands asking for people who have bondable felonies, basically anybody who has a bond to be able to be released from jail because this is a, this is a pandemic and we need to evacuate the dra- jails. It should be treated the way with the urgency that it demands. And just a few, a bunch of other requests, releasing people who are within 60 days of completing their sentence, um, things like that. And within, within 48 hours, I would say the state attorney responded by saying that she was going to um, release people with nonviolent felonies and misdemeanors. And so if you look at the jail stats over the last two weeks, um, the jail population has decreased from 4,000 to about 3,500 people. Um, however, you also still have, I mean, our bond fund is still active. So I'm still getting calls from inside the jail every single day from people who are being referred by other people who we bonded out. And so there's still a lot of people who are sitting in there um, on these kinds of charges who just can't get out. Are you planning on going back into the jails at all, or are you, have you concluded your visits? I am not sure. I really, really don't want to. Um, just being honest with you, I didn't feel comfortable going back on Wednesday, um, but sometimes, you know, you just have to. What is it? You know, a lot of people in different professions are going through this, everyone from supermarket clerks to nurses to doctors, they're maybe really don't want to do something and and yet are doing it anyway. What what goes into your calculation to to do that? For me, um, my calculus is one, I do not want to get coronavirus. <laughs> I'm really, really, really terrified of it. Of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but on the other side of things, I just feel like I'm in a situation where at the very least I have protective equipment that I can go in with. I can come back. I can sanitize my hands. I can take a shower. I have access to all these different things. So I feel like as much as possible, I am trying to avoid going to the jail, but if it feels like somebody really needs me or I really need to get in contact with somebody, then I just feel like I have to go back in. I, I just want to ask you, I mean, I imagine in your career, you've seen a lot of frustrating situations. I'm just curious how this situation falls on the spectrum of experiences you've had working as a public defender and in these mm-hmm. kinds of roles. I've never experienced anything like this pandemic before. I've never experienced something that feels so, I guess, so urgent to respond to. Mm -hmm. I just feel like 
this is just something that we have a moral responsibility to act on. You know, you're seeing what's happening in Rikers right now. You see what's happening in Cook County right now, where the rate of infection is just absolutely horrific. And so, you know, you, we can see these things. And I think that it's just so, so, so important for us to just decarcerate as soon as possible, because even just doing that, even just releasing people frees up space inside of the jail for people who, who end up remaining in there. So I just think I've, I've really never experienced anything that feels so urgent like this and something that feels like such an, just such a moral calling. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for talking to us. And, and I hope, um, I hope you do okay and in your self quarantine. Thanks. I hope you guys are, I hope you guys, uh, you know, also take care. Thanks for talking to us. All right. Bye. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. So Connor, have you followed, we did this, we talked to her on, when was it Friday? What's happened since then? Has there been any change? Have you done more reporting on what's going on in Miami? Well, one of the prisoners that she was talking to has now filed a lawsuit to try and get himself and some other inmates out of the prison, basically arguing that the conditions are unsafe. This one person has his own list of particulars talking about why he doesn't feel safe in the prison and his medical issues, which are pretty significant. And so this effort to bail people out of prison led to a couple of reform organizations getting information from the inside, and that turned into a lawsuit about unsafe conditions. And we'll see where that goes. So, I mean, there's this obvious critical question that's very time sensitive right now, which is that people in jails and prisons across the country are uniquely vulnerable to this disease spreading. Many of them have pre-existing medical conditions. And in addition to that, a lot of people in the jail system don't need to be there, but for lack of relatively small amounts of money. Have you been thinking about what this means overall? Like when this crisis has passed, what are we going to have learned or what's going to happen? You know, the clearest thing is that the public health infrastructure inside jails and prisons need to be improved significantly. And this is, again, important for the sake of these human beings, uh, you know, the ones in jail who are presumed innocent and haven't even been convicted of anything, the ones in prison who have been convicted but are nevertheless being incarcerated by a society that has an obligation to protect them. And for all of us, really, because infectious diseases that spread in prisons don't stay there. People come in and out all the time. There are guards and staff who are going in and out of the prisons and going home to their families. So it's just a pennywise pound foolish system that we don't have basic things like soap, that we pack people in such close quarters that the flu is going to go in through any institution anytime that one or two people get it. And then beyond the public health question, which is very straightforward, it seems pretty difficult to argue that these people shouldn't have soap. But a tougher question is how long should we keep people in prison? Uh, Mm -hmm. Right now, there are different places around the country where people in the last six months of their sentence are being let out. Um, and Because of coronavirus. Yeah, because of coronavirus. Just trying to thin out the population and different 
governors and prosecutors have thought, well, okay, these people are about to get let out anyway, uh, better let them out now. And so there are going to be a lot of questions asked about how long sentences are. And I wonder if the fact that the coronavirus is forcing us all into a kind of house arrest and the fact that we're all experiencing what that is like, even after just a couple of weeks of it, um, is going to cause people to reevaluate how long a one-year prison sentence or a five-year prison sentence mm -hmm. or a 10-year prison sentence really is, how much of a punishment right. that really is. Right. Um, Connor, I think that you, you know, there's this tension, right, where the government is telling people that the only way to prevent this disease is to social distance. And the same government is telling us that you have to go into prisons sometimes, that you have to stay there and that you cannot leave and that you cannot social distance. That contradiction seems like, like undeniable, that there's some plausible deniability about what might be happening in prisons at other times, that they can downplay rates of certain infectious diseases or not report abuse or inhumane conditions. But here, the very fact of just saying, no, we don't have enough physical space for people to social distance is itself clear evidence of an inhumane condition. When I hear assurances from different heads of jails and different spokespeople who are saying, don't worry, we have the ability to keep these people safe, um, I just think, no, you don't, unless you have a bunch of empty isolation cells that we don't know about, unless you're a very unusual facility in a position of very unusual abundance of space, uh, then it just is the case that people are going to be less safe uh, where you are than they would be otherwise. Yeah. I, I've been thinking and I've been hearing a lot about concern from public health advocates about prisons. Do you know of any places that have successfully taken emergency measures to depopulate jails and get people out? Is there any state or <laughs> any place yeah. that's done anything that could be a model? One example I would look to is Philadelphia. Philadelphia seemed to be a case where prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges all work together to try and find a relatively quick and expedient solution. You know, everything from letting some people out early to changing bail requirements to delaying arrests and arraignments for low-level offenses until after the coronavirus pandemic is over. And the federal United States attorney in that area, I think his name is Bill McSwain, went on to Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News in this just awful segment where he was basically asserting that the defense attorneys and the criminals are in league with one another and basically just want to let people out on the street for no reason because they have a radical ideological attachment to doing so. So it was just, you know, the most nakedly demagogic instance of attributing bad motives when there are these very clear motives for doing what they did that are probably going to make both the people remaining in the jails and the people of Philadelphia as a whole who have to share hospital facilities with anyone who gets sick safer. Yeah. That the stigma of criminality, I think is really seems to be an underlying theme here that we put this moral valence on being convicted of something, being incarcerated, and it barely even matters what it is. But if you did something wrong, suddenly the value of your health in your life is decreased in the eyes of society. Yeah. And you can imagine an alternative reality where at the sentencing, a criminal would be told, your 
you've committed these offenses, you're going to go to jail for two years, and you're also going to be infected with this disease. And that would seem monstrous to us. And yet, there's this simultaneous acceptance of the functional equivalent. Well, uh, thanks for talking to us, and thanks for letting me crash your reporting call. Yeah, anytime. Hey, uh, good talking with you, uh, Connor. Connor, I can't wait to check out your Instagram. All right. Sounds good. I will I will grant your request. Night oh, walk. I have to request. My nightwalks are locked, so. Oh, it's going to be yeah. so awkward if you don't accept um accept my friend request. No, no, no. Uh, well, of course I accept. Okay. Um thank you so much, Connor. I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye. Okay. Later. Okay, bye. This show is produced by Alvin Melth and Kevin Townsend and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and leave reviews for us, and that's good. And you can write to us at socialdistance at theatlantic.com. And you can read our work and subscribe to The Atlantic if you're able. That is very much appreciated by everyone, including Connor. That was amazing. I'll just add that we also have help from Anna Waters and Jacqueline Landry. I'm sorry. Thank yes. you, Michelle. Thank you, Anna and Jacqueline. Thank you, everyone. Okay. Talk to you tomorrow. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.